Today's guest is Dr. Vanessa Peters. Dr. Peters is a family physician and the founder of VMD Investing. She has been investing in real estate for over 12 years in single family homes, commercial real estate, apartment communities, short-term rentals, and self-storage. She is the author of The Busy Professional's Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, A Physician's Path to Building Wealth, Creating Financial Freedom, and Leaving a Legacy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Erin. Happy to be here. And you know, I had a chance to read your book, The Busy Professional's Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. But before we dive into the book, um, I just want to get a little bit uh, understanding of your back background and as well as how you got into real estate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I am from Canada originally. I'm Canadian. And uh, around uh, the time of, of college, um, I figured I was about done with the cold weather up there and I really wanted to come down to the warmer climate of the U.S. So uh, I attended medical school in Canada as well as my residency and then was fortunate enough to find a position uh, as a family physician down here in San Diego County and um, was extremely pleased <laughs> at that. Obviously, Southern California is a beautiful place to live. So um, I moved down here in 2002 right out of residency, my first job. Um, I'm still at the same clinic, you know, same practice. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, but I realized after, you know, a couple of years in practice that, gosh, we work awful hard. You know, we really do. Um, nights and weekends and phone calls and long hours and such. And so I started seeking other ways to make my money work for me. Initially, that was just kind of like a dream um, with, you know, being a, a new grad with lots of student loan debt and a fairly low salary. Um, but over the years, I was able to save up enough money uh, and purchased a, uh, my first rental property in 2008. Um, I, at that point, I wasn't really into real estate, but I had a friend who was a realtor and um, I had mentioned he's, he was into investing and uh, I was asking him about it. And he said, well, you know, um, there's some good deals to be had right now because the market, of course, had just kind of crashed in 2007, early 2008. So in, um, in late 2008, um, I did purchase a, um, a short sale in Riverside County, which is just north of San Diego County, and um, bought it for, I think, 225 It was a short sale, big house, and um, that was my first foray into being a landlord, and so I you know, did a little bit of learning, but I wouldn't say it was my passion. And then, of course, um, the market continued to drop you know, over the next three years. And so I kind of put my head in the sand and I was like, I don't know if I made the right decision and things are still going down. And um, on the side, I also had an accidental landlord home that I um, had lived in previously and moved out to be with my, um, my, my, my new husband. And I couldn't sell that home because it had lost so much value. Mm. So I was kind of uh, stuck with this like albatross of, uh, of a home that I I felt responsible to keep it because I couldn't sell it mm. and uh, I had to pay a thousand dollars a month just to keep it afloat the rent didn't near cover what I had to, <laughs> I had taken out HELOCs and such on it so um, so I had that and then I had this house in Riverside that was you know value kept going down and so I was pretty unsure about myself if I had um, maybe a mentor or done a little bit um, more research, I would have seen the tea leaves and purchased a few more properties at that time mm. as things were going. 
hindsight is 2020. If I had bought 10 of those homes, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy right now. So that right. was kind of how I got, that's kind of how I got started in real estate. So you were a landlord and an accident landlord and a practicing physician at the same time. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you manage being all through all two at the same time, being a full-time landlord with these two properties and also a full-time um, a physician. Yeah, I mean, at that time, it wasn't too bad. Fortunately, I got some good tenants in the Riverside home. And um, in 2012, I did finally realize that that house, um, the accidental house had to go. And so I did do a short sale, unfortunately, at that time. And, um, you know, I wish I didn't, hadn't had to do that. Um, It eventually recovered. But in hindsight, that was the right thing to do, because it took another at least five years to get back to its previous value. And by then, feeding at $1,000 a month just doesn't, doesn't add up. So, um, so then I did get rid of that one. So then I had one home for a while. Um, then I started, um, actually investing in syndications, um, in 2011, 2012. And, um, uh, these were, um, I didn't know what they were called. I didn't know that they were syndications. Um, but my, uh, financial advisor said, Hey, you know, you qualify for this investment you have a little bit of extra money. It's a, um, it's a triple net lease in, uh, in basically large big box retail type stores like Staples or, Petco or tractor supply company. And so I put some money into that and they said, you know, it's uh, very safe. There was no leverage. So they pay all cash for these properties mm-hmm. and um, it's a 10 year fund. It'll pay you 5%. And then in the end you might get some money back. And I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> again, not very educated, didn't really know what I was doing, just going on the recommendation of my advisors who I trust. And so um, I put a quite a bit of money into that actually and it's still there <laughs> right i i did invested in fund seven and fund eight and so i'm i'm really in that till 2022 to 2024 unfortunately and the rates have gone down to three and a half percent you know so it's like oh my god uh, i'd love to get that money out of there so that was kind of my first uh, accidental investing in syndications syndications yeah. and talking about yeah. syndications i i want to dive a little bit into your book um, you know, your book, the, the title is Passive Real Estate Investing. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what is passive real estate investing? How, how do you define that? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a really important distinction. That's why I named my book Passive Real Estate Investing, because um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there for quote unquote, passive real estate investing. It's not passive at all. Uh, for example, buying a home and renting it out, not, not passive. Um, you know, buying, um, buying any kind of actual property, even if it's a short-term rental, long-term rental, anything like that is going to be active investing. And I wanted to make a distinction there because I learned kind of the hard way that it's not really easy to, um, to invest in a property and take care of it yourself when you're working full-time. And so, you know, uh, I'm a busy professional, so I wanted to speak to other busy professionals out there and let them know that there are options for you that are good. And uh, many of us know that real estate is a great way to uh, gain wealth, you know, improve our net worth, but we don't know how to get into it. So we think the way I did, oh, well, I have to go buy some properties um, in my own name and get my own mortgage and, and be all that. Um, the, the problem with that is the responsibility factor. Um, it's, it's not only work if you need to maintain it, if you need to find uh, tenants, et cetera, but it's the responsibility. And um, if something goes wrong with the property, such as the, 
the water heater or the HVAC or the roof, um, that's going to wipe out your profits for like a couple of years on most properties that have, you know, a little bit of cash flow. So I personally didn't like the responsibility and I didn't like the risk. And um, if, if the place happens to be empty, it's 100% empty and you're covering that mortgage. So um, while I still do have the rental property, I have every year I think about selling it um, because it's gone up so much. It's doubled in price. Uh, but then I realized that, you know, I read some more. I'm like, no, I'm going to hold on to it. If the tenants ever leave, yeah, I'll probably sell. Um, but they're good tenants. They pay, and I'm and I'm making a lot of money on it, so that's okay. But in general, um, uh, I found that but purchasing a single-family home is not a, a good passive way to go. Um, then, when I was looking for more ways to invest in real estate, I'll just give you a little more of my story. Around 20, um, 2016, I just had this realization. Uh, I kind of came out of the baby cave, I call it, which is when you have little young kids and you're just so focused on young kids that, and everything about babies that you can't even think about anything else like investing or <laughs> growing your net worth. Um, I kind of came out of that around that time. My son was five and I woke up and I was like, oh my God, you know, I want to be at home more. I want to work less. I need to grow my net worth. I've been doing my best to save for retirement and my net worth is rising in a fairly linear line. It's not like, mm -hmm. where's that exponential compounded interest they talk about? I didn't, I didn't see that in my net worth. And I was pretty diligent about tracking my net worth. Um, but I became frustrated after about five to seven years of really saving quite a bit of my income. And I, I said, I need to find a new vehicle to, to invest in. And of course, real estate comes to mind. Um, I, I got really passionate about it. I was determined to invest in real estate. And when I looked in my area, um, I was like, hey, well, I did so great with this home in Riverside. Let's do that again. And um, not realizing the, the active nature of it. Um, I looked around, couldn't find anything that was, that was uh, going to cash flow in California, of course. Um, and then moved to uh, investigating what other folks are doing in California. Uh, other investors in California do uh, out-of-state investing, which is turnkey usually, uh, where you purchase a place that's been renovated and it's managed by someone else in another state in a cheaper area where you can buy a home for a hundred grand instead of 500 grand. And right. um, a lot of people were doing that. And I thought about it, I looked into it, uh, but again, I had the discomfort with being so responsible and also being responsible for something that I couldn't drive to. So past that over, I was getting kind of frustrated um, when I stumbled upon syndications, um, reading mm -hmm. on bigger pockets. I, I kind of was like, what, what is that? You know, I need to learn more about that. It was on a doctor's board or something. And so um, I called a few people, got some information about it. Um, and when I learned about the, the way that syndications are structured and how um, you can be paid a fairly good interest rate and excellent returns over, you know, three to five to seven years. Um, I was like, okay, this is it. The light bulb went off for me that this was how I could invest passively. I could actually get some money and it's tax leverage and all the other benefits of syndication and, um, and get a great return comparable in my mind to, you know, a lot of just tr traditional purchasing of, of real estate where you own it in your own name. So that was how I, so how I got to syndications. And so if somebody is interested in syndication or learning more about syndication, you know, walk us through, um, you know, what are the different terminologies within um, the real estate syndication or the players within syndication? Um, because you, know, you often hear these terminologies of, 
general partner, limited partner, mm -hmm. uh, private offering. And, and if people are not familiar with that, could you walk us through some of that terminology so they have a better understanding of um, when they're reading some documents, what what those yes. are. Yeah, absolutely. It can be confusing at first. And what was, you know, astounding to me is I had never heard of it. When I learned about it, the whole world opened up and I started doing tons of research on, on syndications. And um, my first deal, I thought, this is too good to be true. You're telling me I can get 8% preferred return and 20% on my money per year, doubling my money in five years. That's crazy talk. So I, um, did a lot of research. I did background checks on the operator and the property manager. I went out to Texas, walked the property and got a gut check on the folks. And I was like, okay, this is for real. And then of course I started talking to other people who had already done it and realized that this, this, this wasn't a scam. Um, but I realized as well that none of my colleagues knew anything about this kind of thing. And of course the reason is several fold. One is that, um, you know, we listen to our financial advisors and they, they kind of tell us the best way to invest our money, which is, of course, in the traditional methods of um, the stock market, you know, whether it's through 401k or other paper assets. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is that many of these deals are 506B, meaning that they're mm -hmm. um, the regulation 506B is the rule that indicates that you cannot advertise most of these. Some of them are advertised, but um, you wouldn't necessarily know what they were if you saw them on the Internet, for example. So. Uh, you have to do a little bit of digging and you almost kind of have to know somebody to get into this world. Uh, once I was in there, I had a lot of learning to do. And so the main players in the syndication, it's basically uh, a group of folks, usually three people who want to purchase a building or a property that's usually quite large. So, um, I mean, typical niches um, in real estate would be either like um, a, a group of mobile home parks uh, a self-storage facility or an apartment building. Um, syndication does not only apply to real estate, it can apply to any number of things as well. But in this, in this talk, we're talking about real estate. So um, those folks um, usually have different roles and those are called the general partners or key principles. You can be called either one, uh, means the same thing. These are the folks who are doing the, the um, the legwork, they're finding the property, they're vetting it, they're doing their due diligence, underwriting, they're also the ones getting the mortgage, getting the loan, they're signing it, they're guaranteeing the loan, etc. So those are the, uh, the GPs, those are the active partners. And then when they find a building that they would like to purchase, they need money. They need money for um, obviously the down payment, uh, which is usually in the range of 25 to 30%. Um, and they also need money for capital expenditures, which means, you know, cleaning up the building, renovating it. And most of these deals nowadays are um, a long flip. So meaning that they're going to purchase a building that needs to be fixed up. It hasn't been renovated in some time. It's a little bit older. Maybe it's from the 1980s and it's outdated in terms of its interiors and exteriors. So uh, it takes several years to renovate a large building over 100 units and um, they need money to do those renovations. So the, the down payment and the CapEx needs to be raised. And those people that provide the funds are called limited partners. And, and that's the investor. And that would be myself or other folks like myself who are busy folks who um, 
realize the value of real estate, but don't want to go out and put their own name on a loan um, or take the time to find and vet and purchase a building. So as a limited partner, do you have any type of say in how that partnership is run or what type of property is going to be bought with that money that you're putting into that uh, par- um, into that syndication? Right. Uh, no, you don't. And so that's sort of the, the, the benefit. And for some people, the downside, um, the benefit is that you you choose the, you choose the deal that you would like to invest in. You look at it, you review the deck, you know, you review all the information about it, learn as much as you want, speak with the operator. And if you like the deal, then you put your money in. And literally once you wire that money, your job is done. You, you don't have anything further to do except maybe read the monthly updates or the quarterly financials if you choose to and uh, accept the money that comes in your bank account um, every quarter or every month. So um, you're, you're really limited in your uh, say. So if you think, hey, this is a good time to sell, I think we should sell. No, you don't have anything to say. I like this color uh, backsplash. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> so um, other folks who are more inclined to be active investors really don't like this kind of investment because they want to get their hands dirty. So this is catered towards folks who want to write a check and then get money back in the mail and keep tabs on it, but nothing else really. And are there uh, fees involved for this or is it just putting the money into the into the syndicate and then receiving um, uh, monthly payments? Is there any type of fees involved as well or it depends on the syndicate? Yeah, there's usually fees. Um, the general partners do a lot of work and they're not doing it for free. Um, they they, um, as I mentioned, do a whole host of things. Um, they have to build relationships with the brokers to get these deals before anybody else gets them, especially right now, multifamily is really kind of hot. Um, so you gotta, you gotta have a lot of experience to be able to um, do this and do it effectively. So they get paid um, at the beginning when the building uh, is purchased, there is an, uh, an asset, um, an acquisition fee. And that's usually in the range of 2%, maybe 3%. One to 3% say. And then because they do also, it's not just, they're not just done once they buy it. They're actually managing the property and the business plan to renovate it. They're usually paid an asset management fee, which is, um, which is much smaller and that varies, but that's an ongoing fee that they get. Um, and then at the back end, um, of course I should say that the returns that are quoted, um, to you in the, in the deal deck are net of all fees. So it's not like you have to subtract one or 2% from your returns. Um, and then of course, in the end, everybody shares in the equity of the deal. And that just depends on the deal, but it's typically 70% of the equity goes to the limited partners and 30% goes to the general partners. So that's how the GPs make money. Got it. I know previously you mentioned, you know, in order to go into these deals, you might have to know somebody because of, you can't advertise. But these days you often hear of, um, you know, crowdfunding. So how is syndication similar or different than um, crowdfunding? Right. right. So there's regulation um, uh, 506A, B and C. And um, B, we already talked about, you need to um, know somebody, you um you can allow accredited and non-accredited investors in those deals. Um, 35 non-accredited investors are allowed. 
uh, the C deals are uh, 506C can be advertised and you must be an accredited investor. Uh, and the difference between B and C in terms of accredited is that for C you must verify it through an outside party such as a CPA or an online service um, to prove that you do have that net worth of $1 million excluding the, um, the equity in your primary residence or $200,000 a year income uh, as a single person or $300,000 as a couple. Uh, for the 506B, you can just check a box saying, yes, I'm accredited. And it's just kind of an honor system. The, uh, the, the A is the crowdfunding. And that one um, is quite a bit different because you they have a, usually have an online platform. There's several companies out there that do this. And they provide deals and allow you in for much lower minimums. Um, I believe you can go down as low as like, thousand or dollars and you know up to five or ten I think those are the more typical prices um, the minimums for the other deals are typically 25 usually 50 though 50k is mostly the the most common minimum uh, most investors put in between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars so um, the the crowdfunding you have a person there's a middleman there's someone in between you and the operator um, and that is the uh, the platform there is for me, um, the benefit, I guess, is that you can go in with lower amounts, um, but the downside is that you don't know really the operator. It's harder to vet someone. You may not be able to speak with them. And um, I've had um, anecdotal uh, experiences where people have put money in and never heard back. So um, it, it's such a, a, the business of real estate, especially with syndication, is all about trust. And if you don't know and trust your operator, um, then it's hard to put money into something. And really, the before I look at the deal and the location, you need to like you know you need to look the operator first because you can have the best building and the best place, but if the business plan isn't good or the operator is shady, then it's not going to be something that's going to be profitable for you. Got it. And you mentioned you know having the best building. So when you're looking at properties for syndication, you know what what are the different criteria you're looking at? Are you looking at multifamily? Are you looking at offices? What are you traditionally looking at in terms of the, properties? The niches that I invest in are multifamily, self-storage, and mobile homes. So not currently looking at industrial or office. Um, not to say that I wouldn't do that in the future, but that's, you know, I've had good deal flow with, with just those three options at this point. And um, in terms of the criteria for the building, it's, it's uh, of course, building and location are important. Uh, as far as location, you need to make sure that you're in a place that is growing, that has strong demographics with growth of jobs and people are moving to the area. Um, it's also helpful to have some great employers in the area who are hiring uh, millennials, mostly, who make a good amount of money. So. The target um, for the buildings I like to invest in is usually a B market and, you know, uh, a, an A or a B market, but the building isn't going to be an A. The building will be a B. Um, the reason for that is that the A's are the, the class of building. It's a new construction in the last 10 to 20 years, and they're much more expensive and they don't need renovations. So we're looking for places that are a little bit run down. They were probably from the 80s. And... Um, like I said before, they need some updating. Um, once you update them, you make them more modern, 
uh, for example, you add in, um, you know, the, the Nest thermostat, um, you put in Amazon lockers, um, you have, you know, touchless this and that, and nice lighting, then you can cater to the millennials and charge less than the the nicer place down the block. And the other reason that's, that's important is because of a recession. And so obviously we're kind of in a recession, we're heading into a recession right now with the coronavirus epidemic. And um, when people lose their jobs, they're going to move out of the home, the, the more expensive apartments and into the cheaper apartments, but they probably don't want to go to a C-class because mm -hmm. that's kind of a little bit, um, you know, under their standards, but they can probably still afford the B-class apartments. So that's, that's definitely important cool. is that the, the class of the building, the class of the area must be a good area because that's really important. Nobody wants to live in an unsafe area. So um, B, A or B for sure. And, and then the demographics. Uh, those are the most important things. And so with these types of A or B properties, uh, there's a chap entire chapter in your book that talks about, you know, a step-by-step -step guide to achieving a six-figure passive income in eight years. And I thought when I looked at, I was a little skeptical first, but when I looked at the math, it, it did make sense. So could you walk us through how to achieve that passive income uh, and, and that step-by-step -step in about eight yeah, years? Yeah, sure. I, um, I wanted to know this for myself. <laughs> I was investing um, as much money as I could in syndications. Um, when I found out about this, I took the money I had. I took money I didn't have. <laughs> I took money from my 401k. Um, fortunately, I was able to roll some of it into a self-directed 401k, which I highly recommend. And um, and then I took some money from my, the equity in my home and got a HELOC. So I took, took as much money as I could find and I put it into these syndications. And then I thought to myself, Hey, I want to know if I invest $100,000 every year and reinvest all of my dividends, assuming, you know, current rates and such, um, where am I going to be? And I looked everywhere for these, this calculator and I couldn't find it. Uh, so, um, so I created one. So I have a spreadsheet that really outlines if you invest $100,000 per year, every year, and you um, assume an 8% preferred return and you know, a 20% um, you know, cash on cash return per year that by investing, reinvesting all of the dividends, you will achieve uh, over the end of eight years, you will be at $129,000 in cash flow. And that is, you know, totally passive cash flow per year. So, and then, you know, if you, if you take it out, you know, 10 years, um, that it, it starts going up pretty crazy. That's just the beginning. Eight years. I stopped at eight years because the chapter would have just gotten kind of weird long. Um, but if you if you right. look at the spreadsheet, which I'm happy to give um, your listeners the link, um, if you start going out to ten years, it's 186k. Um, and then if you go out to uh, 12 years, it's 300. And so by the time if you get to 15 years, um, it's let me see. I want to make sure I'm on the right line of the spreadsheet here. 534,000. So, and you know, for many busy professionals, hundred K a year is doable. You know, it really is because we put 20 into just a 401k, probably more into your profit sharing account. You know, if you add it all up, it's, it's not that much. So where can they find that link and walk us through once they get to that link, how they can get to the, sure. the Excel yeah, spreadsheet? It's my website, which is uh, vmdinvesting.com forward slash roadmap 
and it's just a, it's just a uh, a single page with a link, and then you click the link and you'll download the the actual Excel spreadsheet. You can play with it. Um, the um, some of the the cells you can you can change. So for example, if you say um, I only want to invest fifty thousand this year or none next year. You can alter how much you invest per year and kind of see how the numbers play out. You can also alter the percent. For example, the preferred rate of return isn't really 8% anymore. It's 7%, you know, since I created this. So you can change your assumptions and you can change how much you invest to play with it. It's kind of fun to see how much money you could um, be getting passively over time. And so talking about the rewards, but I also want to look at the, the risk side mm -hmm. of the equation as well. So uh, for somebody that does put in money into syndication, uh, what are the risks? And also, let's say if somebody is also probably interested in being, a, you know, running a syndicate, um, what are some risks of accepting private money? And uh, because, you know, things can always go wrong. So I was wondering if you can cover both sides of the risk. Um, and what you have seen from your yeah, experience. For sure. So um, the risks of investing in a syndication are that the building um, or the property may not perform as expected. So you, the returns might be lower than were predicted in the pro forma. And that can be due to any number of things. And we're in the middle of one right now. Um, several of the syndications that I am currently invested in have been withholding their distributions for the last few months because they don't know what's going to happen to their rental pop their renters if they're going to stop paying rent or if they're going to move out. So um, of course there's you know things in the economy that can affect. Um, the important thing is to pick places and types of properties that are recession resistant um, because that's one of the biggest risks is everybody can make money in real estate in an up market um, it's in the down market that the the rubber meets the road and so uh, that's why i love self-storage you know self-storage is doing phenomenally well right now um, i'm about to invest in a deal mm -hmm. myself that's that's predicted to do 30 percent so um, the, the good thing about self-storage is, you know, that people need it in the good times and they need it in the bad times. In the bad times, they might lose their home and need to put their stuff in storage. Right now, restaurants and other businesses that have gone out of business don't want to sell their equipment. They'll put it in storage. In good times, we, uh, we tend to buy too much stuff as Americans and we store it in storage. So that's a good hedge. I really like self-storage as a part of my portfolio. Um, and mobile home parks are a, a very limited um they're very limited in the the supply they're not building any more of them and if you can fix them up and make a nice place for people to live that's a good supply of affordable housing which we need as our population ages so i feel like those are protected and then the, the apartments as i mentioned um so lower returns is a risk um, but the good news about this is that even in the downturn of 2008, the default on multifamily was extremely low. Um, I don't have the number right in front of me, but it was in the range of one to two percent. And uh, whereas, you know, uh, you know, single-family homes default rate was much, much higher. And so they're a very safe investment. The chances of uh, the operator that you're investing with actually defaulting and foreclosing on the loan is is extremely small. And if things go bad, the the difference is, is that they'll hold it longer. It won't be a five-year deal. It might be a seven-year deal or maybe even a 10-year deal, which isn't great, but you're still getting cash flow and you still have your principal. Um, the chances of losing all your money, which of course is our 
biggest fear, right? I'm going to put $50,000 into this deal and then it's going to like evaporate. No, that's what people are most scared of. And that's, um, that makes sense. The chances though of that happening um, would, in my mind, would only occur if you invested with someone who was maybe a bad actor, you know, crooked, uh, that would literally steal your money and do take off and go to the Caymans or like a Bernie Madoff or something like that. Because the, the, the building is, it's a building that the loan is backed by an actual building. So you have an asset and you, you shouldn't lose your money um, unless something like that happens. So talking about self-storage, one of the things I recently read um, is that some communities are passing laws and legislation to limit the number of self-storage. And I was wondering if you heard of that or if you had oh, any comments about those. I haven't those. heard that, um, but there are a ton of new construction builds popping up in lots of cities. And these are kind of nicer looking, they're multi-level, they have climate control. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if some you know, counties are doing that. Um, that's, that's okay. You know, I'm not investing in the new construction. Um, I'm investing in the, uh, the mom and pop uh, versions where they're super run down. They don't even have a website, you know, that kind of thing. The, the ones that have a lot of meat on the bone so you can renovate it and make it very profitable. And so we talked a little bit about the risk in investing in a syndicate, but let's say if somebody is uh, forming a um, syndication as a general partner, and what are some of the risks of accepting uh, well, private Well, you have money? to be extremely careful, and um, you need to pay a lawyer, a syndication attorney to draw up all your documents and make sure you're doing everything correctly. This is a lot different than going together with a couple of friends on a joint venture, you know, where you can just kind of do a, a quick little contract. It's um, regulated by the SEC and the Securities and Exchange Commission. You don't want to cross them. Um, so you do take on a lot of risk accepting investors' money. I mean, if it's something that would keep you up at night, then you probably shouldn't do it. Um, you have to really believe in what you're doing and you need to have the experience. And there's a lot of weekend workshops out there to becoming an operator. And, you know, I Definitely wouldn't recommend that. You want to be mentored by somebody who can walk walk you through it and show you the ropes and say, this is the attorney I use and this is what you do. Um, because you don't want to make a mistake because you can't claim ignorance if the SEC is, you know, auditing you. And, and talking about SEC and regulation. So let's say if somebody does want to raise capital for this indication, how does somebody go about finding um you know, accredited investors because those are not, they're not being advertised and the deals are not being advertised. So how, what is the mechanism for these two individuals? Yeah, that's to a great meet? question because um, you really have to, you have to go through your network. Um, if you have folks around you who might be interested, you can start with them and talk to them about that. You are um, looking in raising money for a uh, type of a uh, real estate deal. Um, but the, the best way really is to get out there and put your thoughts out there in what we call a thought leadership platform, like what you're doing, Aaron, you know, a podcast, uh, write a blog, um, you know, post on different websites, um, create your own website and, you know, make yourself a thought leader in the area of syndications and real estate. Uh, that will give you credibility so that um, if you do have a deal and you'd like to have investors. First of all, you have to have a prior relationship with an investor before you can even review an active deal with them. So you have to start by 
creating a list of people that you know. A lot of people when they first get started, it's like kind of the first couple of deals are friends and family. They're people that they've known for many years and they say, hey, I'm doing this deal, can you put some money in? And and that's a great way to start, but that they're gonna run out of money soon and you need to have a, a little bit of a wider web if you want to really be participating in syndications as a, someone who's bringing in capital. Got it. You know, I really enjoyed reading your book. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, you know, what's the best way to reach out to you, find more about you, find, uh, get right. a copy of your uh, book? My website, uh, vmdinvesting.com has a couple of sign-up sheets. It also has a first free chapter, first three chapters for free. Uh, if you want to sign up for that. Also, my email address is vanessa at vmdinvesting.com. And I'd be happy to, uh, to chat with anyone further.